Hi, welcome to episode eight of Talk About the Passion. Wow, eight, huh? Who knew? I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, I'm going to try and make this intro uh, quick as this episode is, is pretty long. It's, it's a little over 90 minutes. Uh, so this conversation was a few different things. Uh, first of all, I, I have to admit I was a little nervous about this conversation before it happened, mainly because I don't know a thing about uh, Philip Glass, uh, classical music, or Richard. So uh, let, let me rephrase that. To, I didn't know. Uh, now I, yeah, I know a little bit more after talking to him. Uh, I know Richard's uh, wife, Jennifer, who's referred by name a few times throughout the episode uh and they both know my brother jeff who's also mentioned my name a couple times so i don't know if you hear those people uh reference that's who they're talking about um i i had met him once or twice uh with jennifer and you know thought he was a, a pretty cool guy so uh when he got in touch about coming on the podcast i was immediately into it and uh you know with most of these interviews i've done i've sent each person a little list of questions or you know subjects we can talk about if anything just to have sort of a guide to keep us you know on track but you know sometimes the nature of conversations especially long ones you know do just that this one doesn't veer too far off track or anything but we certainly didn't follow much of a timeline or anything like the other ones i've been doing which is fine uh i don't even think i looked at the the sheet of paper i brought with me once uh but the the conversation ended up uh, enlightening, it was pretty enlightening for me, and I hope for Richard as well. To me, at the core, the the conversation's basically uh, a guy from the rock music world with little knowledge of uh, the classical music world talking to a guy from the classical music world with little knowledge of the rock music world, and uh, yeah, just two guys talking, so... Uh, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot of stuff. It's long and winding, but uh, I don't think it runs out of steam. So, yeah. And uh, also, if you're interested in the company uh, Richard works for, they have a website, uh, orangemountainmusic.com, uh, which is uh, Philip Glass, his label, and uh, there's a few other artists on there and records and uh, links to buy them and things like that. So, yeah. Uh, thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, enjoy. jobs versus you know these coal mining things like well my father worked at a factory and right anyway um, all right so so you grew up in uh lynn or swampscott <laughs> <you see. laughs> so, so let's start what this it? out with talking yeah, about. No, what, what was it oh yeah what's it like to to feel uh envy of all people who <laughs> are from lynn I, and knowing that you'll never be as good I as don't they know, are man it's 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 tough. It's I grew. Tough. I'll tell you what. I grew up. Well, I was born in Pennsylvania, and we, my father, found this job, um, in Chelsea, mm-hmm. and then he was commuting back and forth to Pennsylvania for like, some like months. Really? Wow. Like on weekends, he sleep yeah, on the couch yeah. and then go back to see us on right. the, on the weekends in Pennsylvania, and it was a Chelsea light trawler, mm-hmm. I think, but my father's from France, so that might be he might be saying <laughs> completely different words. I right. Don't right. Know, whatever light trawler means. 
but uh, then he got this job at, at GE, um, and we lived in one of those triple-deckers. Mm-hmm. And I have a friend in New York who grew up in Arlington. And he's, yeah. His entire youth was seeing triple-deckers on fire. Oh, on yeah, land. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he, uh, we were there for a little while on the best street name ever. It was Fearless Ave. Oh, and really? Yeah. Uh, and we were there for, for a few years or whatever. And then my parents got a house with the front door is in Swampscott. The rest of the house is in Lynn. Really? And yeah. so it's like 25% Swampscott taxes, <laughs> 75% Lynn tax. Like, yeah. m- and, you know, Jen will be the first to be like, well, you grew up sleeping. In that. And <laughs> But we moved to New York. We were there for eight years. Mm-hmm. And no matter what you think of Lynn, you come back from living in New York. Did you ever live in New York? No, no. You come back from living in New York, and it's like, man, Lynn is pretty nice. <laughs> pretty, pretty nice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Lynn, we're, we're by Lynn Woods and yeah. over, over that side of Lynn. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The, the nice, nice part. Yeah, the nice part. Uh, but it really is. It's super nice. And I, yeah. you know, I run in the cemetery and, and yeah. uh, we can walk to things. My, And then I just set up all the office here because I lived I lived in this building across the way there. Oh, you did. And, and uh, the guests, uh, Forrest and Amanda, well, they weren't the guests yet. But, right. Uh, they live right down the hall. Oh, all right. And That's my first apartment was down there on Summer Street. Oh, and then right. I got, th- this is my second office here. So nice. I love being here. Yeah. So, yeah, we're, we're in uh, beautiful... Salem Mass here in this uh, building, which is the Hawthorne, the pretty close Bowditch, Bowditch <laughs> house uh, behind the Witch House, and uh, I'm here with my friend uh, Richard Guerin, and uh, this is the office for uh, largely for Orange Mountain Music, mm-hmm. Philip Glass's record label. Okay, and so you got into Music as a, uh, how young were you when you, you got into You know, I was trying to, uh, y- your podcast has made me think a lot about these things, but I was trying to think of, I had a friend who worked in music, uh, his sister worked in music in, hi- in high school. She was a few years older. Mm-hmm. And he invited me to a concert. My first concert ever was um, Cypress Hill and, <laughs> and Public Enemy. Really? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I strike you as a Cypress Hill no, Public no. Enemy type of guy. Not at all. No, but no. it was at Great Woods. Yeah. And uh, was that the Smoking Groove store or something like this that? This would have been like I, I would have been like I, I don't know, sixteen or seventeen. Okay. So like nineteen ninety four, five. Yeah. Maybe it was out out of high school. I don't remember, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. All the did it take you a long time to? Settle in on the things you liked. I mean, or were you? I think so. Yeah, I was. I was kind of my, you know, my dad and my brother, because we had music in the house since my dad was in, in music, and my brother, you know, I had that the older brother like that had records and and, uh, and yeah, like I remember early on like listening to like Paul Simon and, you know, what Cat Stevens and that kind of stuff, and then, I think I kind of found my way to hard rock somehow. I don't, I don't know how. How those two, there. those two lead immediately towards hard rock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, you don't remember how though. I mean, what I one thing led to another. I don't. I don't. I think. I think just seeing Kiss. My dad took us to see them as as uh, when I was seven. Yeah, you and mentioned uh, that. What was he thinking? <laughs> I was a big fan of, uh, at seven. Seven. You know, I think more because of. The look and, and just the, the, the myth behind them and, and this and that was interesting to me as a. But see, that's what I'm talking about. I yeah. have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> all I know about Kiss was when they made some sort of comeback, 
in the late 90s or something. Yeah. And they have costumes. And the yeah, guy yeah. sticks out his tongue. That's yeah, all yeah. I know about. Yeah, yeah. But, oh, and the I Want to Rock and Roll all night. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's a good one. I'm assuming they have other songs. Yeah, but, you do. You do. But something about Kiss pulled you in? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what. But, uh, yeah, so. Was that the first one? And then that? Oh. No, my, my first show was actually Cat Stevens, which I don't remember. I think I was I was probably six years old when, when we went to that, so I don't really remember that. But That's incredible, though, that somebody yeah. would take you to those things. I know. Did he like Kiss? Maybe I don't think so. He was more of my dad was more of like a, a doo-wop and, and you know his era of fifties music. Like he loves Dion and, and yeah, uh, soul and, and blues and R and B and that kind of stuff. So I just I, you know I have a, that same Irish guy I was telling you about mm -hmm. his his family. Um, you know he's working class outside of Dublin and. 20 years later, I went with, or 25 years later, I went with one of his sons, his oldest son, to the National Gallery of Art in Dublin. Mm -hmm. This is, sounds like it's off topic, but it's not. Uh, and we went to the National Gallery of Art, and this, this guy was like 25, had this memory of being brought there as a kid. Right. Uh, and he was, you know, he just couldn't believe, he, you know, he had this moment where he was like, I can't believe my father brought me here. You know, right. his father was like this working class guy from the, basically the like, like being from Revere or Everett and taking right. his kid to the MFA. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, it's certainly not the time we live in now. There were like, there's such contempt for anything artsy. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having the same sort of thing. Like, your father would be probably arrested for child abuse oh, if know, he took yeah. you to oh, a I know, yeah. concert. Oh, I know. Well, a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. I remember knowing. You know, with Cheech and Chong, because my dad worked for A&M Records, so we had uh, Cheech and Chong records around the house, because I think they, the first couple were were on Cheech and Chong. Gay were on Gateway records. records. Yeah, yeah. And we even went to some Cheech and Chong live event at one point <laughs> in, in, in the 70s, and I remember my mom years later said, you know, the whole night you were hanging out with Tommy Chong's daughter, who later I realized was... I assume was Ray Don Chong, the actress who's I think this around the same age as me. I don't I don't know if her career still exists, but at one point in the eighties <laughs> or nineties, she it was a, a thing. He had a she had a a a, 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 a career. Like, my favorite thing about that type of thing is that, um, and uh, this has happened to me a lot in my life. And again, you know, I was saying, you know, I know I'm in this tiny little sliver of music in a way. Mm -hmm. And it's or not even music, but this bigger, much bigger world that I'm aware of. But I don't get ner I don't know who you'd be nervous to meet. Right. Uh, but I don't get nervous. You know, it's amazing. You don't get nervous to meet that other people are like, <gasps> right. You right. know, and that happens a lot to me in my, my everyday it, yeah. uh, job. Yeah. But I, you know, those are potential situations for me to embarrass myself, you right. know, because I don't know who these people are. But um, like, who would you be nervous to meet? Um. The one guy I was actually nervous to meet, and it was sort of by accident, was uh, this guitar player, Mark Ribot. Do, do you know him? He, he's played with like John Zorn, so okay. Um, he played with him a lot. He's he's played on uh, Elvis Costello records and uh, Tom Waits. He played on all the like the Tom Waits, uh, uh, Rain Dogs, and, and and some of his like mid-period stuff. Uh, but I met him at one point, and it was just kind of like. I didn't really know what to say, and he's not like a household name. Nobody, yeah, right. Nobody would even probably know who he was if he was walking down the street. So, I don't. I don't really get <coughs> nervous that much around. Like, if I see, I think maybe from living in Los Angeles, 
and visiting there a lot you you see people here and there and yeah well it's just, it's i find it's a thing in places like boston where they're not famous people right. uh, they're not famous musicians just yeah. walking down the street everywhere and in new york it, it really is i mean as much as i really don't like new york or didn't enjoy living there you have to give it credit credit in that way where you know you can do things and meet people that you would never otherwise meet right um but again you know i'll i'll, I'll get weak in the knees at like i was thinking about this because of different things i'm working on now but there's this one col- uh, polish composer who died in 2013 that i really love mm-hmm. whose name is Wojciech kilar mm-hmm. and uh you know where people hang out by the stage door the only time i met him was like at this you know, they were doing a piece of his at St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York. And, mm-hmm. you know, in my world, the stage doors are like church doors. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. You know, but I wasn't even going to stay, and Jen made me stay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so happy I did, because that was 2005. And But all these other people, um, you know, because Philip had this, uh, Philip Glass had this uh, uh, recording studio for years, I would mm-hmm. say from like 1992 or something like that through... Um, I don't know, 2010 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there are all these people that came through. Like they do, you know, they're always doing additional mixing on these big pop projects right. or whatever. Whoever the bands were at the time, like, you know, like Coldplay did additional mixing there. or And all the studio engineers who were largely rock and roll people would get all flustered and would be like, you know who that is? And I'm right. Like, That's Tony Visconti. And I'm like, I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. And they're like, well, he's Bowie's producer. I'm like, right. oh, okay. You know, the guy from Labyrinth. Right. You know, <laughs> you think I'm, you think I'm it's, kidding, it, but, but it's, I'm, you know, my world is so limited to, and this is so painful for my wife, as you know, like right. we were in a restaurant one time and uh, a song was playing. She does this from time to time. She said, um, do you know, do you know who did the song? And it was the, um, come on, baby, light my fire. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. She even sounds stupid coming out of my right. mouth. But I was like, yeah, I know who this is. She's like, who is it? And I was like, um, it's the Jim Morrissey Hotel. <laughs> and she's like, it's so painful. It's so painful, all of it. But like whether it was like people like Roger Waters or right. whoever were coming through there because, yeah. you know, it's a recording studio yeah. in New York. I don't know these people. Right. But I, but I, I can recognize other people acting weird yeah, around yeah. them. Right. Um, but at the same time, it's like... Uh, it, it, I don't know. It gave for me. It gave me a glimpse all along the way about about that that facade, or not not even the facade, the line between the f- front of the stage and backstage. Yeah, yeah. Because that was one of my first early lessons. Uh, I interned at the Boston Pops, mm-hmm. uh, and and my ship had sailed. I was like in my mid twenties, and I was, yeah. and all the people who come through there, like you know, Bono. That while I was there it was two thousand. It was the Convent Democratic National Convention was in Boston, so mm-hmm. it was just all these people. Whether it was like Ben Affleck or Yo Yo Ma or John Williams or right. uh, uh, I'm trying to think, Vanessa Williams, Ted Kennedy, whatever. It was just all these people coming through there, and right. um, you know, going to Boston Symphony or Boston Pops concerts, and then being backstage at these things. The first thing you see behind backstage is a giant clock and there's a guy who gets them on and off the stage. Right, That's right. his job. Yeah, yeah. And as soon as they're off the stage, and this is true of most working musicians, it's like throw your stuff in your locker, run out the back door. Right, <laughs> you right. know, like, yeah, yeah. And you know, it's super special for the people on the front of the house, but it's not necessarily that way right. backstage. Yeah. And so, um, 
sort of all these different experiences of seeing how the sausage was made right, um, right. was at a fairly early age was kind of kind of important. It's yeah. an important lesson to learn because it's not just about marketing and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because there were the people like some of the people I work with, they were just they're artists. They're so totally committed to what they're doing, but that yeah. has nothing to do with all the other stuff of getting them onto the stage and right. keeping their their professional lives going. So, yeah. but um, I was gonna keep. I just keep asking you questions. So like, <laughs> How did you get from uh, Cypress Hill and Public Enemy to? Uh, <laughs> so you you obviously took a, a completely different turn. Was that I, just I like remember the the Public Enemy concert. All I wanted, you know, do the right thing. I was like 10, 11 years old. How old are you? I'm forty eight. So you're nine years older, yeah. Because you're talking about things in the the, the like mid '80s, yeah, yeah. Where for me that would have been the early '90s or something. Right. Um, you know, do the right thing was a bit like that was a formative experience for me of hearing yeah. you know the opening sequence of Do, do you remember this when they're oh, yeah. um, uh, you know, so there's all these things and rap was a new thing in the mid '80s. I mean, yeah. I remember um, what what, what uh, elementary school did you go to? I went to Johnson School in the Hunt. Oh, okay. And then I went to one in uh, in California, in Encino, which is where uh, I went to school. You know, Tim Conway as the actor. No. Like Dorf on golf. <laughs> I, went to, I went to school with his son, which isn't really anything <laughs> to brag about, really. <laughs> but uh, but Encino was, was sort of like... Oh, the, these are two big experiences. Yeah. Chong's sister... <laughs> And, 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 and that guy, Dorf, yeah, 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 Dorf, Dorf on golf's kid. Uh, uh, you know, it's funny because I don't, and this is, I, I don't um, do the right thing. I would have been like eleven, yeah, with that incredible opening with the Public Enemy song, and then, but right around the same time, I discovered. Um, well, even before this, my father was not. Um, my father was like that, other, like that Irish guy. It was yeah. like expose your kids to. To culture, you know, he had right. this deference for high culture, like, yeah. uh, and one of his fam- famous things, echoing in my mind growing up, is, you know, oh, that's class. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he's yeah. just this old French guy. It's oh, that's class. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you know, he's this, he's an orphan, and he comes from the middle of the countryside. He grows up in Paris. Mm-hmm. Uh, the orphanage was near Paris, and he grew up around Paris. And it was like, you know, the museums were free. The Louvre was free, and all yeah. this stuff. And I just we just came back from Paris. I had this amazing conversation with I, I like talking to taxi drivers. I don't know yeah. about you. I talk I talked to them mm-hmm. about whatever. And I had I had this one conversation with this taxi driver. There were these two guys, both both of these guys separate conversations were, were Arab. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to one and I said, Well, I was asking about the sort of mistreatment of um, of immigrants in France and he was like, Whoa, 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 you know, mistreatment's a big word and right. he said, you know, I, uh, anyway, that was a political one. And then I talked to this other guy. We had been to the opera. Because mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that building. Um, Not in person. That's that's the Garnier Opera House in Paris right. where, yep. you know, supposedly uh, the fan of the opera and stuff, the underground river. That right. I was like 12 years old or something. Mm-hmm. And I was with my father. on, And there's a huge avenue facing that build- building. So you look at it from hun- like half a mile away. It's right. like this huge cultural way of the way the city is designed like washington dc where you're looking right. at that building going that's important right right and we don't really have anything like that in this right. country this sort no, of no. common vocabulary the built environment saying right. that something's you know that and i asked my father i said what's that and, you know it's oh it's the opera you know it's like no and i was just 12 and I go, what is that you know right. what could that be and then uh 
flash forward to like this past trip we went to the opera an extra ticket and i invited this 19 year old kid and i was living in france when i was 19 mm-hmm. and it's just so funny because the kid at intermission it's the most ornate incredible building you've ever been you, if you yeah. ever have a chance to just go inside it's amazing yeah. but this young kid was like boy this is um, unbelievable there must be a lot of money in opera right. and i'm like <laughs> what are you talking about right. you know like <laughs> the like the bands you see at at you know the Sinclair in Cambridge right. make more than opera singers right. make. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I just had this. Uh, so I, uh, this is Jesus Christ. It's a long day. Anyway, um, uh, I went to. Um, well, my father bought a CD player when I was brand new. When yeah. CD players were brand new, like so, this is like '85 or something. Yeah, and. I don't know if you remember this when they gave they didn't have any nothing was on CD so yeah. like they gave you the CD player and they give you samplers yeah so my father still has these samplers oh, I don't think he yeah. ever got any more <laughs> CDs so it was all classical music to show yeah. off the because I don't you yeah, know the, the, the urban myth for CDs is that it was chosen to be about 80 minutes long because that's right. the the length of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony oh, I didn't really it was like the greatest piece of music right. ever that's what it's going to be right um because it was going to be compact no matter how big right. they made it, right? So they just decided on a certain thing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I grew up with these samplers, like the greatest hits of 1750 yeah. and <laughs> Beethoven's Ninth, which if I'm sure my father's playing it tonight while he cooks. You know, <laughs> you do something, and that was another separate lesson of you do something enough, it becomes unspecial. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know, so, so there was that. And then when I was about 10, uh, I heard Danny Elfman's soundtrack to Batman. Mm-hmm. This grand, sweeping, orchestral, yeah. romantic, right. exciting thing. Uh, and ever since then, I've been sort of trying to make sense of why Beethoven is this incredible, great, revered composer. Mm-hmm. And yet this other thing is commercial crap. Right, right. Which it means just as much to me. Anybody yeah, who yeah. falls in love with right, that, I'm right. saying you yeah, do yeah. you do backflips to try to justify the music yeah. you like. I don't yeah. know how much you have to do Definitely. of that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the dynamics of that are yeah. in your world, but no, there are people like, oh, this is great stuff. Oh, definitely. Like, no, people get very charged up and, and on both sides, you know. Well, so imagine even knowing this, like if I'm coming, if you're coming from a classical music perspective, which is a super problematic perspective, <laughs> very limited, very, and, and the problem, one of the problems facing classical music is that the people start when they're four years old, right. mastering their instruments, and then they just, it's a cloistered existence through their entire life and they're not um it's not a it's not a broad it, well and and it's probably the same in a lot of things if yeah. you like hip-hop you like hip-hop you don't right. know anything about anything else right but uh i i was trying to figure that out because especially with danny elfman he was this guy who came from oligo boingo right and i'm like what is that and the guy and it said orchestrated by i'm like the, the guitar player from his band was his orchestrator i'm like right who the hell is that and how does he know what to how does right. he know what to write and how does yeah, he know yeah, yeah. how does the guitar player know how to do this um and i've been basically these are big questions that face me <laughs> like yeah, yeah. <laughs> what is good and what's bad what's commercial and what's not i mean mm-hmm. i think that's the main in my world for for what how i've come to understand music especially being an american which is a super complicated subject on its own mm-hmm. of i think the main issue facing everybody is art and commerce and and the line or if there is any line right. between them and and what that means because we sort of we like to revere you know early bands and their early stuff was great right right, right. and then they yeah, were, when they get popular then they, they get popular got right. crap well 
you know, I would ask questions because I don't know anything about anything about like I asked a guy in New York who's a record producer and sort of plugged in. I was like, you know, how they how are these people like um, like Billy Joel? Like regardless of whether you like Billy Joel, he wrote right. like ten good songs, twelve yeah. good songs, great right. songs, and then he never wrote another good song for forty right. years. How yeah, does yeah. that work? Lionel right. Richie had like number one hit seven years in a row, right? And then you never and 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 it and it's this thing that nobody really wants to talk about is that like uh chuck the artist chuck close says something about this is like the most fortunate thing that can happen to an artist is that the world wants the thing that you're doing at the time when you're doing it yeah yeah because in classical music especially with difficult modern music it became about the future like oh in 50 years from now um you know the mailman would will be whistling right. you know schoenberg's tunes and it's right. like well, it's now 75 years later and that still hasn't happened. You know, right. Instead of having some idealized audience in the future who will appreciate me and everything I did, I'm going to write... And Kusevitsky, the conductor in Boston, always... My, I don't know if I'm paraphrasing or if I even have it right, but he was always saying... He always said, uh, you can't have a future if you don't have a present. Yeah. That, you know, it doesn't... You could be writing the greatest thing, but if no one ever hears it, then it doesn't... You right, know, it doesn't. So why are the garage bands good... And and before they get corrupted by money and fame, there was a thing on like uh, public television last night about um, Ro Ro Robert Plant, yeah, <laughs> of yeah. a band <laughs> called uh, the the Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, uh, you know, he's got a new solo album out or right. whatever, and there mm -hmm. and you know he seemed as equally perplexed about the whole thing as anybody yeah. else. You know, yeah. so, why am and and a lot of those people, and he probably feels this way because he's doing it. And all art, uh, most artists I know are like this. If you ask them what the greatest piece they've ever done or what their best album is, it's like, well, the one I'm working on yeah, right the now. New, is, yeah, the, yeah. yeah. Uh, and they feel, and they might be right, like yeah. quality-wise, that it might be much more, uh, even if you're just talking about songs, much more sophisticated and much more whatever, but right. it's, it's not resonating for whatever yeah, reason right. with whatever. So, um so in the music I chose, it was always sort of a fringe because in my world, it was yeah. in my mind, it was a fringe because I don't know, like yours seemed, the stuff you like seemed to be connected to like a culture that yeah, you knew people who were listening to it. Yeah. I think the, like the punk scene that I've been talking about mostly on the, on the podcast anyway, um, is more of almost like a, like a scene and not, not a way of life that seems kind of corny. Um, but it's a very compact scene and it, it got a little too, uh, and I think my, my friend Jason Kogan talked about this on the second episode where it became so uh, exclusive that it became inclusive, like, or became so inclusive that it became exclusive where... Is that like the Yogi Bear thing? Of <laughs> it's, it's so popular nobody goes there anymore? Yeah, yeah. Or just that people were very, uh, it has to be this way. It was very uniform. Like if the music sounds... Same thing if it starts to progress towards another style of music, then you know that those guys aren't punk anymore or they're not. But who was the judge of that? Yeah, exactly. I, and but there were somebody, magazines or somebody was yeah, deciding magazines these things. And, and that's kind of how I got out of that whole, not got out of it, but just kind of that kind of soured me on that. How whole, old were you when you made uh, that? Maybe early 20s. And that's kind of when I 
you became disenfranchised. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's when I just discovered more stuff like indie, like Sonic Youth and, and, and music like that. And then I think kind of sort of reverted back to classic rock and, and stuff I listened to when I was growing up, like we were talking about before. We recorded like the stuff that sort of stays with you forever. Yeah. And that little chunk of time in your life between. I think for me it was stuff from when I was like 14 to 17 I've been revisiting a lot lately. I was going to say you still so you st but did you go away from it and then come back? Yeah. Or yeah. has there been anything that you've remained faithful to? Um not really. No, I I think like the, through the whole time I, I yeah. guess. Yeah, I, I I can't really think of any examples but maybe uh like Rush or something like that. I've kind of always liked and but there was a period in like the punk scene, at least for me, maybe just being insecure and reading it the wrong way, where I thought like if I was into punk music I couldn't still like this genre of music because, you know, these guys would and it's kinda like that still. People shit on you if you you know Yeah, totally. People hate the foo fighters and you know and you know, or the red hot chili peppers, which, you know, that's a questionable well, I, you know. Things, you get older too, and you and none of those things make sense to you anymore. Like why you would get on anybody for type yeah. of music? They no, like. I know. Yeah, but at the point. time, like somebody in my life likes to constantly make fun of me that I <laughs> I bought a, a Spice Girls CD. Yeah, and I try to explain the mentality of a fourteen year old buying a Spice Girls CD yeah. for very superficial reasons. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But, but you know, I was buying all sorts of pop crap, right. trying to feel my way around the world. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, and that's why, I, you know, I, classical music was definitely one thing because I I viewed it then when you're discovering, there's just so much. I mean, Beethoven's yeah. got 30, uh, you know, Haydn's got 107 symphonies, Beethoven's got 32 piano sonatas, right. Mozart has 41 symphonies, 27 piano concertos, 27 operas. He died at 35, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, each one of these operas was two hours long. I mean, right. there's just so much music to discover. But basically, and and you know, I my take on this is that I like the sound of the orchestra, right. and it was always you know you could write really mediocre stuff, mm -hmm. and that happens every day, especially in film music, and have an orchestra play it, and it yeah. sounds great. <laughs> do you, Do you remember the first time you that you like you saw like an orchestra perform or it hit you where you're like, this is kind of what I I love this and it no really because that well that was the other standard see if you're coming at it from classical music there's no amplification in, there in right. classical music right. so uh you know you go to symphony hall and there's nothing you just you're in a room yeah. and i run a chamber music series here in salem and it's mm -hmm. like you know what's the setup it's like put out some chairs yeah, yeah. um and I, that kind of thing bothered me too because everyone in the rock scene everyone was talking about Volume. producers whether it was george martin or whatever and, and right. he's like you know what kind of guitars and what are you know what kind of, i mean you guys were went off on like a a, a 20 minute geek thing about guitars and what right. you brought again. yeah and yeah, i was yeah. like you know there was not to me there was like whether you're talking about this is i'm having all sorts of repressed memories come back so before i made it in music made it in music <laughs> before i got into music working yeah. wise yeah uh i i i did a, i worked for a lot of construction guys and mm -hmm. man i've had my share of classic rock i don't need to hear classic yeah, yeah. rock ever right. again and stevie ray vaughn mm -hmm. is like a god to those guys yeah yeah and uh i don't again i don't know anything about it he sounded yeah. like he could he could 
play a mean guitar, but like one, I, it it just didn't, it didn't seem like he seemed he was talented. Like I right. don't know anything about it; it's not right. my thing. But yeah, he seems yeah. like a really talented right, guy. Right. So you guys were discussing that, not nitpicking or ripping right. him apart, but there was something wrong with him. Yeah, 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 yeah. From your perspective, it was yeah, clear. Yeah, people seem to uh, he gets pigeonholed, and it's the same thing because he's popular and it's very clean sounding. I think I think that's what people. You know, or, you know, he's not, he's a white blues guy, which I think if you asked, like, Buddy Guy or, like, any African-American blues musician and said, you know, do you not like Steve Ray Vaughan? They'd be like, no, you crazy. He's an, he was an amazing guitar player. And but that's what came back to me. That came to me. That's what I'm talking about. These, these types of things were almost as interesting to me as the music itself. Like, yeah. why... Uh, why Danny Elfman is a guy from a band who came into the sacred realm of notated music yeah. was there was a keyboard magazine article right after Batman came out. It was like, everybody knows that this guy just hums into a tape recorder. Right. And, and Danny Elfman was like, like in the article, he's like, fuck you. He right. did a written response to yeah, keyboard yeah. magazine saying, right. I work my ass off. Right. I retrain myself how to do, you know, yeah. how to do this and whatever. And, and I did it. Yeah. Which is really ironic because actually the Batman theme was totally stolen from a Bernard Herrmann soundtrack oh, from yeah. Journey to the Center of the Earth. Yeah. This whole story, I still love. I still love Danny Elfman, but right. uh, and I believe him. But it was a snobbery having to do with like, uh, like remember when uh, you know the clerics were the only literate people and they were mm-hmm. they had the truth because they could read. It was right. that type of thing. It was like up until the mid nineteen nineties, late nineteen nineties, when people started to write with using computers. Right. Like rock band guys, I'm assuming most of them don't know how to read or right. read or write music. Yeah. They don't know how to notate. Right. And the only benefit, as far as I can tell, with notated music is that you could build more complicated structures, yeah. which you are beyond any human's ability yeah. to, to memorize. But yeah. uh, but that same type of issue exists in other things. So I was always trying to find things like that. Like this past week, I was listening to Keith Jarrett's recording of Shostakovich's 24 Preludes and Fugues. Mm-hmm. And it can't be it can't be legitimate. It's a jazz guy playing. He's playing the notes. Right. And he's playing them in a tremendously personal, super technically proficient way. Right. He's no, he's no like, he's, it's insane to pretend there's something wrong with Keith Jarrett playing this music just because he's not a classical music guy. Uh, And I'd like to think we're sort of moving beyond some of those things, but I don't think so. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like those magazines, they're always naysayers. Are these people putting people down trying to say, and, you know, Philip faces it all the time. Yeah. Like whether it's being successful or not successful, or whether it's being, um, you know, uh, commercial, like like you know, a store bought thing. I I talked to these guys in New York that I know that were in bands that probably you would know because I don't right. know. <laughs> like the guy who started Orange Mountain Music, this record company, he was in some bands like uh, um, the Ray Beats and oh, the Contortions, yeah. mm-hmm. oh, and, wow. and he's a drummer. Yeah, and you know, he talks about things in that type of currency too. Yeah. Like, oh, these people were store bought or these, right. are, you know, and I don't really know what they're talking about. But, yeah. um, but to me, it was always more interesting of like, uh, like you take composers like, like John Williams, he's a master composer, Yeah, but he never really, he never wrote an opera. Right. You know, he never, and, and a contemporary of his, Andre Previn, who, I don't know if you know Andre Previn, but he was mm-hmm. a big deal for our parents' yeah, generation. Yeah. Uh, Andre Previn won four Oscars, and then he right. left Hollywood, and he turned his back and was like, 
it's not a serious place for creativity or music yeah, or whatever. Right. And then Philip Glass has this totally different perspective on these things because he's in New York. He's a serious right. artist or whatever. Right. And he goes to L.A. and he works on these things. He says, you know, um, it's if you want to work with these people, you have to go there. Yeah. Like, And if you want to work with Martin Scorsese, you have to go do all, all right. you know. He's not going to direct an opera or something. Right. So, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and, and he's got great ways of talking about these things. He says um, um, talent is a sort of democratically distributed entity. Mm-hmm. And so when, you know, you look at composers like Dvorak or, or Bartok who use folk melodies in their music. Yeah. When Philip came time, when it came time for Philip at 55 yeah. to write his first symphony, uh, he wrote it based on the music of David Bowie and Brian Eno. Mm-hmm. Well, the first, he was doing the Berlin trilogy. So yeah. he did Low Symphony and he did oh, wow. Hero Symphony. And people were like, you know, the classical music world did not oh, accept bet. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, I bet. And until Bowie died, these pieces were not really done very often. Now Bowie died and there's no Bowie classical music. Right. And so these pieces have taken off in popularity. Oh, but uh, Which is really strange because the pieces don't change. They're notes on paper. Yeah, yeah. But the world, in his, in this case, the world catches up. But for right. him, it was as simple as they were, Bowie and Eno were super talented yeah. people. That was right. it. They wrote great melodies. They wrote yeah. great stuff. And so he just orchestrated it and reharmonized and then made bigger structures out yeah. of it. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't to do with any sort of snobbery. Like, right. he's totally over it. And he's more in line than I am. I have right. these, the same pre-programmed yeah, yeah. things that when I see Trent Reznor doing soundtracks, or, and I don't know him or... Right. Uh, um, you know, uh, Mark Mothersbaugh just did, did the new uh, Thor movie. Yeah. Um, and I immediately do that thing that I criticize of. Like, right, right. Well, <laughs> well, what's he doing? I right, mean, who's right. helping him out? Right. And, you know, he can't possibly do it. Where does he come from? Or, you know. Um, and the truth is, it's just this ongoing this ongoing thing that nobody really knows about. I'm, yeah. I'm talking about creativity. Yeah, yeah. Of like, you know, because what do those rock guys do after they their popularity wanes? I think a lot of them they'll, and I th- and I imagine this. Uh, maybe maybe it happens in the classical world too, but um, they'll go back to just touring and just playing the hits, you know, and doing like a greatest hits tour or something, and just right. Know, so they do the album that nobody the album wants nobody to hear, really cares about, and then. And so they'll, they'll do two songs from the new album and then break right. into their greatest hits. Yeah. Play the hits. Yeah, yeah. People <laughs> want to hear that. And the, the band Iron Maiden, they've been doing this thing for the last decade or so where they tour, and they'll tour one year. They'll tour a new album and play a bunch of new stuff. And then the next tour, they'll do like a sort of a greatest hits thing. So it kind of satisfies both. Is, it, like is any of it any good? Um, I, I haven't really gone into it. I, I, and I bought tickets to one of their shows in the early 2000s, and, and I didn't realize that's... And they were literally just playing their whole new album front to back that wasn't even released in the U.S. yet. So it was like an hour of just standing, <laughs> standing there listening to, you know, and it just, I don't know, and I've never gone back. You know, I think I got that record after, and, and but I, I don't know, I... Well, this is the thing. I mean, we went to that. Apparently, you and I have been to a show. Yeah. Uh, the same one? show. Which one? We went to The Cure. Oh, yeah. Was it last year or something? Yeah, last summer, yeah. Uh, and and That was probably I, the best I, time I saw them, I think. Really? Out of <laughs> 12 times, maybe. This is, it's, it's so funny because I'm, you know, 
it's very frustrating to people who care about this stuff. <laughs> but I, you know, since I don't care or know who they right. are, yeah, um, uh, I was in I was touring Silicon Valley. It's mm-hmm. a long story, but we were at Google headquarters, and there was like this panel, and on the panel was um, uh, Roger O'Donnell. Mm-hmm. Who was that? He's the keyboard player from The Cure. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, okay. And so he was. You know, I was just talking to him because he's writing music now. He's writing yeah. sort of ballets and concert pieces okay. and stuff. And you know, it's a, it's it's mystifying to those people. Like, I know film composers who are like they'll write concert pieces. I was talking to a guy today. He did a Star Trek movie. Yeah. Uh, and he's he's you know it's mystifying that like on one hand there are these people who will pay you hundreds of thousands of dollars to work on this movie. Yeah. And then you write a symphony, which is better music. Uh, from your soul, whatever. Right. And you can't talk anybody into even playing it right. once. And uh, so he's going to go off and record it and all this stuff. But uh, it, it's got to be the same sort of thing for somebody like, you know, like Roger, where he's writing all this stuff. And, you know, he'll always have the cure. And it, right. But even that, I walk into the record exchange here in Salem and yeah. I, I said, oh, I was at the cure show, you know, like, uh, and they say, I was talking to him about Roger O'Donnell and he said, well, what year did he join the Cure? Because they were good, and you know, like <laughs> right, from right. to eighty five yeah, or eighty seven yeah, yeah. or. Something. I was like, I, I, I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, what, he, what are you talking about? I think he did join later, but it, I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, he's well, well. Anyway, my I go to the show not knowing yeah. any Cure songs, right? And I had a great time. It seemed like the six thousand people or whatever were there had yeah. a great time. Yeah, what's wrong with that? It was a three hour show, wasn't it? Was it? It was, pre- I th- it was pretty long. I remember. But but I remember uh, my wife was, um, you know, I was like, well, the guy said we could go to the show, and she she was she really loves the Cure. I yeah. guess she saw them on their first farewell tour. Okay, again, you know, Gen- like, your Gen- yeah, yeah. Okay, um, and uh, you know, I was like, oh yeah, he just emailed me, and you know, we go if you want. And I was really not apparently I was really nonchalant about it yeah. which was driving her crazy because it's a big <laughs> deal to her yeah yeah uh and we, you know we go backstage after all that stuff but i don't you know it doesn't mean anything. right right you know yeah. i i was happy to be there and it was good music yeah. and everything but it was clearly i, I missed the boat i wasn't yeah. part of the culture or anything like that but it's got to be the same issue of like six thousand people scream at this one thing and then i write this other thing and and i get 50 people in a church right. you know as a fan of music, do you think? Because I know sometimes uh, in one of one of the, the things I think about a lot is people are like exclusive with like with with that kind of thing where well only the true fans like this record by this artist. So maybe it's sort of a treat that you know oh well only a small group of us really gets this you know this record and but how much of that is us telling ourselves that stuff? Right, right. And is it like a positive thing for the artist? Do they? I, well, they again, like I defer to Philip because I, I love how I have this giant like six foot photo <laughs> of Philip right next to my head. <laughs> it's like an icon. Uh, I defer to Philip on a lot of these things because he's got the right head. He was at this um, Red Bull Music Academy being interviewed yeah. a couple years ago. And some some Swedish or German guy was like, oh, you wrote that piece. It's so incredibly deep. Mm-hmm. You know, how did you do that? What was it about? I mean, it's just so incredibly deep. Yeah. Philip was like... I just wrote it. Like yeah. I hear something, I write it down. Yeah. If you think it's deep, it's because you're deep. Right. Yeah. It's not. It has nothing to do with me. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I'm not a creative person. I I work with creative people, but 
uh, and it's a really clear distinction for me because there are people like, oh, it's a, you know, you thought of this or right. like, you know, oh, what a combination or doing this concert at this time or yeah. something like that. That's not creativity. Creativity right. is, I, have you, have you done anything? Musically? I mean, yeah, right. Yeah, I used, or to, I used to play music. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a big, you want to know what the difference is? It, I'm not about to stand on the stage and play right. piano yeah. or sing. Yeah. Uh, or whatever, certainly not my own stuff or yeah. something like that. Um, and it takes an incredible amount of courage. And most of these people start so early yeah. that they don't know. Yeah. But but again, going back to the thing that like pulls us into certain things. I mean, in the mid '90s, I guess like um, you know that Seattle grunge thing came out, and all yeah. my friends were into that. Yeah. And everybody started their band where they would smash their guitars at the end. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And a friend of mine asked me to like. We, you know, the AV club, they would let us borrow the camcorder, <laughs> like the giant shoulder. You know, Swamp's Got High? Swamp's Got High, yeah. So Lenny Kaplan. Lenny Kaplan. I was yeah. talking about him the other day. Yeah. He taught me one of the the most profound lessons of my life. Um, I was telling Jen this like two days ago. Len Kaplan. <laughs> where, where is <laughs> Len know, Kaplan? Right? I was talking about Carl Reardon with someone last night, but Captain that's Carl. a whole other. Yeah. Uh, Anyways. That's a whole other thing. But yeah. uh, Len Kaplan... Uh, it was raining, and we ran out the door of Swamp Sky High School. And I'm 17 years old. I played basketball in my yeah. prime. You know, I'm six foot two, skinny. You know, whatever. And I'm, we're running the car, and Len is like a f- f- gazelle. <laughs> Not only did was he a faster runner than me, and you, Len's like this. Yeah. Uh, how old was he at the time? 45. Probably, yeah. Um, we get in his car, and that's where I learned what a classic car was because he's like, classic cars, anything older than 20 years old. So that means yeah. that car was a 75. Yeah, I know, right? I, yeah. <laughs> anyway, uh, I said, Len, I was like, I was just flabbergasted. I was like, you're this amazing runner. Yeah. Unbelievable. Did you ever run track <laughs> or something? Like, that was incredibly elegant, you know, like a National Ge- Geographic video as Len runs through <laughs> his car. And, and he said, no, 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 no. He said, I've always known I'm a fast runner, but it supports my theory in life that the people who do things are only the people who do things. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, no matter what you're talking about, the fastest runner in the world or whatever, that's only a competition between the people who chose to be runners. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of, there's probably the fastest person alive didn't ever get in a race. Right, right. And work up to that point because yeah, it would yeah. be somebody else. And whether you're talking about opera singers or, or mm-hmm. whatever, it's the people who choose to do the thing. Yeah. And I think about that a lot because the composers, I work with all composers at every level and mm-hmm. artists at every level. And you get to appreciate the different sort of toolkit that each person has. Yeah. And and then they're like in pop, pop, rock, metal, all these things. They're like all the drug overdoses or whatever. Right. They're people who just can't handle it. Yeah, yeah. And I, I used to think as a, a young, immature person, I thought that was bullshit like yeah. you know oh give me a break it's so tough to be fair. right now it's like you know i don't even play the lottery because i'm like i don't want to ruin my <laughs> life i know right? you know i wouldn't be able to handle it i yeah. like my life yeah um but but you know what i mean there are all these issues about like what things people choose to do mm-hmm. and how they handle it and what they bring to it uh, and there are people who are not very creative but they're tremendously successful and then right. there's the super creative people who yeah. you can appreciate yeah, who yeah. aren't successful at right, all right um, you know, did you, uh, so when, how did you get working here? How did you get the start here in Salem? Well, uh, working for uh, <laughs> Philip Glass. Um, well, I was like, my ship had sailed. I was like 25. I was doing construction 
and I was working at the uh, the Paradise Cafe. Oh yeah, bartending because there's no construction work in uh, in the winter. Well, yeah. I was working for a mason. Yeah, listening to classic rock every day, and even then we were doing things like you know a wall or a patio or something, and the owners of the house would come out and go, "This is art." <laughs> and I'd be going, "No, it's not. <laughs> it's a wall." And it's a wall, and not yeah. only that, it was really. Only in Swampscott. One of the guys working with us was this Irish guy who had his PhD in molecular biology. It's like <laughs> if only these people knew that the guy, you know, pointing their wall had a PhD in molecular biology. Um, but anyways, I was bartending at the Paradise Cafe, and uh, um, I could pinpoint the date. It was the date that my, my sister got married. It was like July 31st, 2004 or something. Okay. An apartment here in Salem, and uh, I... Sunday, that was a Saturday, August 1st, I went to a quote-unquote concert yeah. <laughs> in New York, yeah. which was, uh, coincidentally, it was at a church. It was Vidor's Mass for two choirs and two organs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a sermon and stuff going on, but mm-hmm. in my mind, this is a concert, right. you know. Um, I was just there to hear the music. And right. it finished at noon, get back in the car, I had a shift at the Paradise at 6 p.m., and I didn't make it. Yeah, It was an hour late, and I called somebody to stay there, and I got fired. Yeah. Small town politics. I don't know if you dealt with small town politics in Swampscott, but yeah, you know, that was like the hangout too, wasn't it? it was sort of. It was like the only. It was the only real yeah, bar in town in Swampscott. Yeah. Um, and uh, but that was good while I was there because I worked at night bartending right. and I had the days open to to intern at the Boston Pops. Right. And even then, I uh, the person who gave me that gig, she was recently the last few years teaching music administration at Northeastern. And she'd invite me to come speak to her classes. Oh, yeah. And it came up before one of the things. She, she asked the students to do some assignment and I, about write a cover letter or a resume or something. And she said, she said, uh, she was talking about the assignment. And I said, I said, I had, what did I have on my resume? Bartender and Mason? <laughs> like, how did I get the gig right, at the Boston right. Pops? And she said, oh, she said, I remember very clearly. We, you know, we had an interview. And you talked with incredible passion about film music and the right. music that you loved and all that stuff, and that stuck out. Mm-hmm. And so when you said like as a fan, like I don't, I try in everything I do to remember I'm a fan. I was talking about this the other day because th- to me the most beautiful moment in recorded music history is when Napster happened. Yeah, because all of a sudden all these bands that like a bunch of corporate people had decided were good bands. Right. Again, the Len Kaplan principle of like the good bands are the only ones you heard of, right? Because somebody decided that it was okay for you to hear them, right? Napster leveled the playing field oh, across yeah. it, and it was amazing. Yeah, and there was something fundamental. Now we have different business models for music, right. yeah. But the artists were always getting screwed, right? Yeah, and I mean, I'm assuming that was a universal, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> no matter what genre of music you're talking yeah. about, yeah. The artists were getting screwed, and you say, "So why, you know, why should we celebrate that system?" And 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 not only that, I would go to like you'd go to shows, and you go to an amazing show, and then yeah. people who can't even get their money together to record or right, right. anything. And so anyway, Napster, there was something fundamentally more honest about just outright stealing like that right. than the the established model of of. You know, some corporate stealing. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So I don't know if, and I discovered a lot. I was in college when it came out. Yeah. Did you? I mean, 
Not necessarily. I don't, I don't think you so. You didn't do it? No. I didn't do much. Uh, like using Napster and that Well, just stuff. discovering stuff or finding stuff that, um, like bootlegs you, yeah, could, you yeah. couldn't find. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Not through Napster, but there was a period when uh, there was blogs that would have all sorts of live stuff on them. And you would download stuff from uh, a lot of them are like these rush these weird like Russian websites that right, like, yeah. hosted you know zip files right. So you I think it's still the same. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's probably still the same. But like uh, uh, you know, I had friends that would go to they'd go to little shops and they'd have all this, this these bootleg things, yeah. you know. Um, but the thing about it was, all those fans would gladly give the money to the yeah. fans. Yeah, same with me. But it, it, there was just no system for that to happen. Yeah. And I, at one point though, I. I my iTunes library was 178,000 songs or something like that because <laughs> of because of that because a friend of mine, well, two two friends of mine would have these nights where we would get together and bring hard drives over, yeah, and swap music. But I would come home and I'd be like, "All right, I have 78 Rolling Stones albums on here, <laughs> you know, and they only have you know 20 albums out or something." But you know, a lot of them were just live, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, but um, I, I think, you know, but, so I thought, again, a lot about that at the time, because I'm like, why are these bands nobody ever heard of that I like? They're never going to make it. Right. I know they're never going to make it. They know they're never going to make yeah. it. And and who the hell gets to choose this? And then, mm. and then fast forward 20 years, we get things like these, um, like uh, The Voice or American Idol okay. or whatever. It's like, if you win, you get signed. I just got beer on your phone there. Uh, I've got one of those new uh, waterproof. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, you know, if you win, you get signed. What, yeah. what does that even mean? I know. You know, yeah, so you get the right to, for them to take all your stuff. And so that was always um thing. Anyway, I got fired from the bar and because I had that one uh, thing on my resume of working uh, as an intern at the Boston Pops, I got an entry-level job at... Um, at an arts management company in New York, which was amazing to me because in a very short period of time, I went from like, you know, laying paving stones and and <laughs> working with carrying rocks around yeah. to I find myself in the Metrop Metropolitan Opera during rehearsals of my favorite opera, right. going up and talking to the conductor who I just helped out. And, right. And, uh, and that, it, that was generally a terrible job Right. And I lasted as long as I could, which was 18 months. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, it was that New York thing. It was terrible right. in every way except for uh, the opportunity. And I think that's how they justify right. it to themselves. It took me a year to figure out that I wasn't making enough money to live. And then a year and a half before I was totally destitute. Right. And where it forced a decision to be made that right. I had to do something else. And uh, uh, shortly before the end of that, there was uh, in in... I moved there in 2004. In 2002, uh, this guy named Don Christensen started, to, uh, this, the guy who was in those bands was at a meeting with Philip and he was, e eBay and all that stuff was new, right. mm -hmm. 2000, 2002, and he was seeing all these Philip Glass bootlegs pop up on eBay and he yeah. was like, these things are going for like 50 bucks, you know, right. like you should release it because he, Philip owned, owned these, right. you know, that was his thing from the very beginning. He owned almost owned everything. All stuff. And I don't think people realize what that means. But, oh, yeah. It's, um, it's one thing to own your own masters, but it's another thing to own your own publishing. Yeah. Uh, and largely the music industry is designed around wrestling that from oh, artists. Yeah. yeah. Um, and their horror stories everywhere. Oh, yeah. But, Definitely. Um, 
so Don convinced convinced uh, Philip Glass to start his his a third iteration of his record company. The other two ended very successfully. They were sort of imprints. Like yeah. Paul, he had something called Point Music that was on Polygram. They did Symphonic Led Zeppelin. They did. Oh yeah, I remember. Uh, that. They did. Uh, you know, uh, uh, a re-recording of music for airports with Bang and a Can. They did. They did a bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um, but so Orange Mountain Music was this new iteration, and it was. You know, he started an Amazon account, and iTunes is a new thing in 2002. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Got his own direct iTunes account. And within like a year and a half, he had like serious enough cash flow to start financing new records. And all nice. constantly, we're small enough that we can constantly respond to the whatever the music industry is and change right. up. Yeah. But um, so this was like at the end of 2005, right at the end of 2005. Orange Mountain had a remix album coming out where all these DJs remixed Philip Glass things. I think I saw that on uh, this Beck do one maybe. That was the second one. That okay. was like in 2012. Okay. This is 2005, late 2005. Mm -hmm. And there was a record release party yep. at a place in Brooklyn called Galapagos. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went there and, you know, I'm just talking to people and I know every, but I got to meet Don Christian. I'm like, you're the guy who started Philip Glass's record yeah. label. Amazing. Right. I'm talking to him and then like, a week and a half later or something, I hit a wall with the money thing and my other job and yeah. I had maxed out credit cards, really like like a bad New York movie. Right. Where, and I decided, and I had been doing interesting things at this company, uh, but they never paid me. Like they right. give you two or three or four jobs, yeah, yeah. but they never pay you for any of them. Right. Uh, and I said, well, if I go to work today, I got two bucks. I could take the subway in because <laughs> it was two bucks for at the time. Yeah. But I'm laying down the law. I need, they've been dangling a raise in front of me. I need the assurance that I'll just borrow some money from my parents or whatever to right. string it out. And I went in and I asked for a raise and uh, they said, how dare you? And they threw me out of the office. Really? Wow. <laughs> it's totally like, a, <laughs> that I'm telling is, you. That doesn't that sound like a movie. It's like a totally bad right. New York movie. And I went back to my desk and I wrote an email to info at Orange Mountain Music. Yeah. And I said, uh, you know, I met, Don, you know, if this is Don, who I met you a couple right. weeks ago at that thing, and if if by chance you are in the need of somebody, and it just so happened somebody had just left at that time, nice. he didn't have a full time employee, right. so he met, and I got my first experience with that whole thing of like telling your current boss that you're sick, yeah, yeah, and then and then found out that it was Martin Luther King Day, and Don <laughs> delayed it by day, and then it was like, oh, I'm sick again, right, know? right, yeah, um, and. Uh, uh, you know, it, this was a downtown scene. It was totally different. And he hired me at the same money I was making. Right. But it was he hired me for three days a week because mm -hmm. Orange Mountain only had 20 titles in right. the catalog. It was, hired me for three days a week at the same salary as I was making. And I flipped burgers for yeah. for two days a week for, I don't know, less than a year. And I met one of my great friends who's a, yeah. a drummer. And, and I talked to this girl, this drummer, mm -hmm. or she was cooking in this thing and she was in these bands that were trying to make a go of it and I asked her all these questions which were naive questions but there were things like do you like the songs you're playing right yeah and it was shocking to me that she'd be like no not yeah. really I'm like well why are you doing it and right. I get to learn about the sort of dynamics of of that is because everyone's looking for bands or looking to be part of something yeah and, you know it was a totally different yeah uh, culture and everything and then but we have catalog numbers. So Orange Mountain started with 003, which is Candyman. That was our first. Mm -hmm. Philip did the music to the original Candyman okay. in 1992. And that was a complicated experience. 
uh, and so it was just archive stuff. He was releasing archive stuff, and then uh, four, five, six, seven, eight was somebody came to them and said, "Here's my master. Would you? I love the idea of the imprint of being yeah. released of this Philip Glass yeah. album on Philip Glass's label." And uh, and then nine was a recording of Philip playing solo piano. They had the money to produce that, yeah. and it was like boom, boom, boom. And by fourteen, they made a mistake. They overshot on one and almost like went out of business. Oh yeah. And I got hired at uh, the remix album was twenty three. I got hired at twenty twenty four, mm-hmm. which was there's a venue in New York called the Kitchen. Yeah. These are probably the only releases of ours that you'd be interested right. in. Uh, the Kitchen. It was just a, a venue for music, and so that Kitchen album that was volume three. Mm-hmm. It had people. It had bands like uh, Sonic Youth and Swans, oh, right. and it was all yeah. like these really that downtown New York really harsh live recordings. Yeah. That. You know, I couldn't listen to it. Yeah, I don't yeah. even know if I listened to it once. Right. And then 25. So now we're at about 100 and we're at 121 as of today. Wow. Um, so I've been around for just about 100 albums. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, next year I'll be 40 and Don's, Don's like, oh, my God, the 26-year-old <laughs> kid I hired yeah. was going to be 40. But, uh, but the amazing part of it is that there's, you know, there's soundtracks, there's chamber music there's operas there's there's you know uh you know 2007 philip did this song cycle with on leonard cohen poetry yeah um just anything you can think of uh philip is connected to and he's he's one of my first day on the job you know he comes up and says you know he doesn't know who i am right i'm so i'm so glad you're here Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you. So, uh, how was that at meeting him for the for, were you nervous or? Well, I met him as a fan, right? As, uh, you know, a couple of times before, you know, right. just sort of stalking, maneuvering, pushing people out of the way, type of thing, asking for an autograph. But now being um, sort of part of his like operation, and you know, the well, but even that's a learning experience because yeah. uh, a lot of the people in his operation, when I say owning the publishing thing, this is all these stories that he tells. But his mother was a librarian. Uh, in Baltimore and when he was in uh, a young person in New York c- trying to get started mm-hmm. uh, he met this guy of, you know Lieber and Stoller mm-hmm. the songwriter yeah. so Jerry Lieber was, and he's from Baltimore and yeah. whatever they were and he said your name's Glass you're from Baltimore uh, is your mother Ida Glass and he said the librarian he said yeah that's my mother he said I'm going to do you a favor and he brought him into the office and showed him what publishing was it was yeah. a room full of people on telephones yeah, <laughs> collecting yeah. money. Yeah. And he said, that's publishing. Go downtown and register your company. And yeah. from that point on, Philip owned all of his own stuff nice. for the most part. Well, that was a good... Well, yeah, but I mean, it was fortuitous, right? right? So by the time he got an offer for his publishing, it was much later and it was wa- right. worth much, much worse. Yeah, but yeah. he still owns it today. I can't imagine, uh, you know, the kind of worth of that type of thing. But, um, you know, it's... it's it, he's he really is such a, a I, I still maintain the perspective of a fan. Like even the, the I mean, it's not idealism. It's just right. who I am. Yeah, yeah. You know, and even the people who I've worked with at the publishing company, everything, everyone's got, you know, it's from the very, it's somebody told me um, uh, very early on, they were like, oh, it was a real problem. Like you don't hire a fan. Yeah, yeah. Like they're like, oh my God, what are they doing? Right. <laughs> but I'll, I'll say this for, for that is that, you know, being a fan and really loving something, that passion that we're talking about of like really loving something. Yeah. Uh, and at that age, like even in the 20, in my 20s at 27, the sort of um, um, 
deep knowledge that you wouldn't otherwise have because you were just probing articles, looking yeah, yeah. for tidbits of right, information, right. Yeah, yeah. pouring over liner notes, knowing everything. I mean, like, um, you know, I, I, and even now I've accepted that I can't know everything. Right, but right. I, I, would, I would say that like a few other super fans out there, I probably know the music itself better than anybody, including yeah. the composer, right. like knowing, uh, being able to identify yeah, exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. Um, and that kind of passion and interest, which is almost um, constitutional, mm-hmm. carries you through. Like if I were just doing a job, it would be a big drag. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you have bad days like anyone oh, yeah. else, you know, yeah. like you just, I don't want to be doing you know contracts and spreadsheets and right. all that stuff but when you think you're part of something and you feel you're part of something right. it's like the the closest i can imagine to being a part of a cult or something of like right. you know going you know going about your business and doing it just with a, with an unwavering belief right. in what you're doing um but i've said that but at the same time i, I can say things to philip like you know philip you're a great guy i love you you're great but your music is the most important thing to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, it seems like a, a frank admission. Yeah. Yeah. But he knows what I'm talking about. It's right. all in service to the music, and yeah. so um, I can't imagine these. You know, you look at these things like all the 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 things that are happening in the news right now, where so many people's careers are just over overnight. Yeah. 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 I can't imagine what that's like for people who yeah. are are part of that because. I mean, say you're a House of Cards fan, and right. you know, or say you're a show, yeah. you wait Sorry. for your break, yeah. you get your break, and then it's over. Yeah. Um, you know, there's I'm I'm an adult. There's that weariness of 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 oh my god, you know, th- considering what I'm doing with my life. Right. But I feel really good about it on every level. I mean, Philip's work. Okay, yeah. Uh, uh, he just this year premiered Symphony Number no. Eleven. Symphony number 11 is part of a tradition of symphonies throughout history and all that stuff, mm-hmm. but it's not really about anything. Right. Uh, the main message of Philip's work um, through his career has been social themes, mm-hmm. theater pieces that had to do with social themes. So there's right. an o- opera about Gandhi, there's an opera about Einstein, there's an opera about Akhenaten, and those were three people who changed the world through the power of the I- their ideas. In right. the case of Gandhi, it was social transformation through nonviolence. His last major opera he did, which was in 2007, the revised 2015, was called Appomattox, and it was about the history of race in the United States. And mm-hmm. Act One is 1865, and Act Two is 1965, and right. it's got everything from, you know, just episodes of scenes of, of incredible racism to, right. you know, Grant and Lee discussing what they're going to do, and then flash forward to LBJ and mm-hmm. J. Edgar Hoover. It's all right. these people in the opera, and, yeah. and it's a real masterpiece. And you look at it, and you go. And then we're at the, again, we're this, this stuff, we're at the after party and there's like Ruth Bader Ginsburg and right. <laughs> Elena Kagan going, what am I doing here? Right. But, uh, it's, it's about something and, yeah. and, and it's, and it's values are, um, it's, it's aspirations are lofty that yeah. they're, they're, that they're meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, cause again, in, in the history of classical music, a lot of the composers are great artists that we we hold up and on put on pedestals are not great people i mean right as i say this i mean everyone who knows what i'm talking about the first name that jumps to mind is wagner right. <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. this is not a, a generally what we we would call a good person but his art is so much more important than he right is or was mm-hmm. um and so 
that's the thing I didn't really, you know, when we look at things like, like, I don't know anything about the Beatles. Right. We look at things like, at the Beatles, like, I, I don't know, I even finished that story about like the video camera. I'd go, <laughs> I, I, I went, you know, I, the grunge thing was in and this is the, the mid nineties, early mid nineties, whatever. And these friends got together. They were having a band. They, were, oh, so yeah, would, they wanted you to bring Yeah. Them. Would you mind filming us? And they got, there was this little like backyard, um, like playhouse for right. built for kids yeah, yeah. and these kids and it's all they graffitied the inside to make it look right. tough and yeah, yeah. you know they were like you know there's a door a little door at the front and then a window on the side and i'm just going around and they're like would you feel? and it was the lamest thing yeah. I, I was like this is so lame right this is not cool <laughs> <Try> <laughs> <I got> it. <laughs> well and 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 so when we talk about the beatles i wasn't around in the 60s you right. know or you know i realized they're an inspiration to people but how many how many bad bands have they inspired right no I, and people say that about a lot of uh artists i think like the like this band the replacements or elvis costello people are always like i love their stuff but it's the bands that they inspire yeah inspired it's like uh, it's like the whole you know um please jesus save me from your disciples thing <laughs> yeah that that um well, I have an intern it's funny inter- interacting with like 20 year olds yeah because <laughs> i have an intern and they'll say He'll say things like, I'll say, what kind of music you like? And he said, um, uh, I like, I, I, my latest thing is trying to find original ideas. And I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, I'm trying to go back and find the original musical ideas, like the original thing. Right. I'm like, what are you talking about? There is no original <laughs> thing. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, they're, they're, on no level is there right. an original thing. Yeah. And I'm not talking about geniuses standing on the shoulders. Right. Geniuses. I'm talking about... Like, uh, it's, it's like uh, saying who invented the noun right? or, or the verb who invented right. action words. I mean, right. and, and what do you get if you just find the primordial action, right. action word of, uh, I, you know, that, that I have to say musically, that's what attracted me to that, that stuff that came out of the, the late sixties, mid and late sixties, you know, which started with minimalism and that's basically been taken over by, it wasn't so much minimalism. It was that, that breath of fresh air after this period of hyper complexity that was so hard to wrap your brain around that Mm -hmm. it wasn't worth the effort. Right. And, and even before then, everything had sort of been done in music by the time, by 1900, basically everything. And so these things that we see like punk or rock and roll or whatever, or, or even jazz, a version of that had happened before. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so I just kind of never made, I started at the beginning of the timeline. I never right, made right. it past the, yeah, yeah. the linear progression of, of how things should go. But, um, I mean, none of this is very interesting. The thing, the thing that's interesting to me is, is the, 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 when people who are really like we were at the mall a little while ago and there was like a perfume store and it was like the girl running the perfume store was like, this is my store. And she yeah. knew everything about perfume. I love meeting people who like the stuff that right. they like yeah, yeah, and yeah. know about it because, right. because that kind of enthusiasm, you can end up liking anything, right. you know, if, you know, like there are YouTube videos of a, like a little kid who likes Yankee candles and right. just <laughs> talks about the Yankee candle flavor. That's why I was kind of excited that you, you reached out to me to come on the podcast because is is, you know, I was going to, initially be co- sort of uh, almost all exclusively like punk music and this and that but then I realized it's it's just such a limited thing so I'd rather 
and it's going to get boring. Not boring, but just it's going to be the same story every time. So I kind of want to talk to people with, especially this, I don't know anything about, I mean, I know a little bit, but so it's nice to go into different worlds of. It's And it's so, you know, I have to tell you, it's so like I, I have a 94-year-old friend in Queens. Yeah. And he knows a lot about music. Yeah. Um, and he's got these, you know, he's a guy who like, you know, jettisoned his 50,000 LPs or something yeah. and replaced them all in CDs. And yeah. There's no looking back. I mean, right. in classical music, there's no, uh, you don't want to listen to music on LP because the right. dynamic range goes from nothing, a single flute playing and yeah. you're getting hissing and cracking to yeah. a hundred piece orchestra. I right. mean, it's a frustrating thing. If you listen to classical in the car, you turn the volume down right. and up. And, yeah, yeah. Um, but he, he talks about things in, he doesn't want to know a single thing about the, the composer's lives. Yeah. And I want to know everything about the composer's right. lives. And he said, well, I said, you know, doesn't it matter that, you know, Mahler wrote a song cycle called Songs for Dead Children and then a year later one of his children died? <laughs> you know, you don't think that adds poignancy, something right. to, to the listening experience? He said, nope, it's oh. just music. I said, what are you talking about? It's not just music. I mean, that's like saying... I mean, if we lived in a vacuum all with no cultural references of any kind, nothing would mean anything. Right. And so uh, that's the interesting part to me. It's not about, when I say the continuum, it's not about quality. I mean, Philip Glass coexists in the same world as punk rock. Right. And his his early sound, I don't know, I was writing a blog about this before you came in. Mm-hmm. His early sound was uh, was amplified. Right. And there are a number of reasons why he did that, but first and foremost, he started his own group. Mm-hmm. To because he didn't want to ask orchestras and string quartets to play his music. Right. Composers write music and then they wait for somebody right. to, to play it. Right. He that wasn't inter- that wasn't um, uh, interesting to him. Animated right. enough uh, of an existence, and so he started his own group. And he went at the same time he went to see uh, Zappa at the Fillmore East, and mm-hmm. it was like these giant stacks of speakers. amplifier speakers, and he's like. He said to the guy who was with him, he said, I want that. Yeah. And he said, if I, if I can't talk to them in their language, I'm going to talk to them in their volume. Right. Uh, that, again, most composers, especially then and now, aren't willing to do that. Right. Uh, and Or even sort of, it's not attributing anything to Zappa or anything. Right. It's just like, so, my, and all this aside, so what did he do? He started a band right. and he played his music. Yeah. And we treat we we in from the our, my perspective, it's like oh, what a revolutionary! Right. He's just doing the same thing that Led Zeppelin did, yeah, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. How is that any different whatsoever? Yeah, yeah. I, why why give him even credit for doing it? Because right. he's just he started a band, big whoop. Yeah. Right. Um, and but at the same time, it was it was radically effective yeah. in in his world. So, yeah. um, you know, I, Zappa's a guy. I don't know really anything about Zappa. Yeah. I know he was really into the Verez thing, and he wanted yeah. to write whatever but i don't know about his rock music it's rock music right it's, yeah he 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 has a few different he has a bunch of different eras i think his early stuff is is more sort of like a 60s psychedelic thing and then but wouldn't he do more, like these kind of classical pieces that he did yeah. when he would do them in concert oh, yeah, right yeah yeah what was that about um i i, I like some of it some of it's uh we were talking earlier about like some musicians not knowing how to read music. He had a uh, guitar player, Adrian Ballou, if you know him. He played with Zappa for years, uh, the Talking Heads, uh, Bowie. And he apparently doesn't know how to read music. 
So and Zappa's music was is always the guitar player didn't know how to read music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh, his stuff is you know pretty challenging for for a musician. So I think he just wanted to take all his influences and just kind of throw them on stage. And so if you'd go see him, you'd see rock music, jazz, some classical. You know, I, I'm telling you, it's like that. Like I'm saying with that Keith Jarrett thing. There's a, like, for example, like I like I say, I like film music. Yeah. Uh, most people don't think of it this way, but I've had extensive conversations with this conductor friend of mine who didn't know anything about film music either, and he ended up being this conductor in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And so he started doing a lot of it, and then he realized it was actually this great music and yeah. that there was a whole other thing happening, yeah. much worse than the magazines yeah, yeah, yeah. about deeming certain rock bands good or bad. Right. That uh, So talking movies came out, and you know, the first reel, what we view as the first reel film score is one of them is King Kong, mm-hmm. and it was scored by a guy named Max Steiner. Mm-hmm. Max Steiner's uh, godfather was Richard Strauss. I don't okay. know if you know Richard Strauss, you know. Um, and he was Vien- Viennese or whatever. He went to New York, and then he ended up getting gigs in, in Hollywood and doing these things, and then he basically invented the film score as we know it. Yeah. So when we think of film scores, we think of those lush, like, right. you know, string-based melody. It's all Viennese music. Right. It's not only him, it's Korngold, it's other mm-hmm. people. And so when you look at something like Gone with the Wind, 1939, you hear the, you know, um, you know, melodies from the Deep South played in the style of Viennese music. This conductor I know says, well, if, you know, Hitler had invaded Jamaica and the Jamaicans ended up in Hollywood, they were inventing a medium. There was no pre-established model. So nobody thinks it's weird that we're hearing Viennese music during Gone with the Wind. Why are we hearing Viennese music? But we've accepted it. It, yeah, yeah. it became. It was invented. It became a tradition. Huh. So one of the great composers, uh, and and this is unbelievable because if you look at the performance databases of the great orchestras like the New York Philharmonic, you'll, there's another co- composer whom I love, totally love him, uh, named Eric Wolfgang Korngold, and mm-hmm. Wolfgang for Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Eric, right. a child prodigy. Mahler said he was going to be the best. Richard Strauss said he was unbelievable. You know the type of thing you could he could hear a 30-minute piece once as a 10-year-old and then play it play on it. piano. Right. I mean, that kind of freakish talent. And uh, he had a domineering father and all that. And and the Anschluss happens. He's got to get out of Austria with all the other Jewish guys. Right. And this whole thing, when you view it later, the whole thing becomes about anti-Semitism. Right. It's not about... So when we now, like 50 years later, 75 years later, we'll say, oh, well, film music is bad. Yeah. It's not even commercial versus art. It in in this guy's thesis, this conductor's thesis, it, it's about anti-Semitism. Right. After the Second World War, it became, uh, even though the Nazis were defeated, the German intellectual school was, well, that's bad, right. and this is good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you look at people like Korngold, who, child prodigy, the New York Philharmonic played him from 1913, when he was like 15 years old. Mm-hmm. 15-year-old composer getting his stuff played by major orchestras. <laughs> On other continents, it's crazy. All the way up through World War II, yeah. and then they didn't play it again for fifty years. Huh. And that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's not about. Oh, I'll get to it. But so, so I went to visit Korngold's grave. Oh yeah. <laughs> this is these are the things I think about when listening to your podcast. <laughs> I go to visit Korngold's grave, and right at the end of his career, he wrote a letter to Jack Warner of Warner Brothers saying, "I'm getting a little bit too old to be a wunderkind. If I'm ever going to be taken seriously, I have to go back to Europe." Right. And he wrote. He wrote a symphonic serenade, and then he wrote his grand masterpiece, yeah. this this symphony in F sharp, which I just heard at Carnegie Hall. Uh, 
two weeks ago, a week ago. Uh, and it was a total failure. Yeah. Because by 1950, modernism has set in. Nobody wanted to hear a grand right. romantic symphony. Yeah. So he retreated to Hollywood, went back to work, had a stroke, and died. Huh. So he's buried in the Hollywood Forever Cemetery. Have yeah, you yeah. been there? Oh, yeah. You know it? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, go, yeah. I, go looking, I go looking for him. You know, I'm making a pilgrimage to go see these composers' yeah. graves. And I go in. I was like, I'm looking for, uh, you know, Eric Korngold. And they were like, oh, yeah, he's over by Joey Ramone, <laughs> you know, which means nothing to me, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, you know, I, I walked out of there. They have movie night there and stuff. It's a weird yeah, yeah. place. I walked out of there going, this is undignified. I got to get out. I got to get him out of here. Right. I, so I don't know how I'm going to get him out of there, but I got to get him out of there. Yeah. But it, 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 it tied into so many other things for me. On that same Carnegie Hall program was music by Bernard Herman. Right. Do you know who Bernard Herman is? Mm-mm. You know, oh, he, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So he did the music to okay. Psycho. Yeah, yeah. His career as a film composer is bookended by. I see Psycho yeah. up in the yeah. yeah. His career is bookended. His first movie he ever did was Citizen Kane. Okay. And then the last movie he ever did was Taxi Driver. Oh. And and he died. Okay. Uh, the night he finished recording Taxi Driver. In the middle, he's got Psycho and Vertigo and yeah. North by Northwest and all this stuff. And this is this is what the. the, the I blabber on. I'm sorry. I may be blabbering on is okay for podcasts. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if you listen to something, for example, like the the prelude to North by Northwest, mm-hmm. it's just these swirling arpeggios and everything. And maybe 10 years ago, Philip came into my office uh, and he had just seen Vertigo. And he said, hey, can you play that music from Vertigo? And he played it. Vertigo was written in 1958. Yeah. And it's just these swirl. And Philip, Philip said to me, he said, that sounds like something I would write. <laughs> Except it was f- five, seven, ten years before minimalism was invented. Right. It sounds like minimalism. Uh, and it's certainly 30 f- years, 35 years before uh, John Adams, people like John Adams, mm-hmm. would, uh, you wouldn't know John right Adams. Now. But uh, somebody like John Adams synthesized sort of the grand romantic tradition of symphonic music with minimalism. Okay. Um, and, but it's not viewed that way. It's viewed right. as film music. Yeah, it's something apart. Huh. Um, Shostakovich. Do you know Shostakovich? Yeah. So Shostakovich. Again, I could go on for like six hours. So please feel free to interrupt <laughs> me or wrap it up. But Shostakovich is one of my favorite composers, and the quality of his music is dictated by all sorts of things, including in w- whether he was in good standing with Stalin on a given month really? or year. Yeah. So when you look at something, I just did a concert here in Salem. I've tried two concerts that had to do with in October in Salem. Yeah, I was like, well, what can I do which right. will be digestible for the you know the hordes of people who come to Salem? Mm-hmm. And the first one I did was Songs of the Supernatural, and you know whatever. Yeah. And then the next one I did was the music from Psycho, played by a string quartet. Yeah. And that was again, if you don't know much about it, it was like he chose string quartet. There, I mean, string orchestra because there's there's no other instruments because the movie was in black and white. Right. So the the sound of strings was the perfect analog for, yeah. like, but uh, there's all these famous stories about Psycho. But something I had never heard before was Shostakovich would put his musical initials into his compositions. So he'd yeah. go ba 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 ba. That's D S C H in, right. in musical notation. So in this sort of communist society or whatever right. he's constantly reasserting his yeah, individuality yeah. you know it's like i'm shostakovich I'm right. <laughs> you oh, know. Wow. uh so he wrote his eighth string quartet in 1960 yeah and as as high-minded as people think uh, 
classical music might be or something like that. Right. I mean, Shostakovich's one quote about his eight string quartet is like the, p- the piece flowed through me, not like, uh, you know, it wasn't mo- so much as inspiration from the heavens, but right. more like I drank a lot of beer and pissed it out. <laughs> uh, it was written the same year as Psycho was written. Yeah. And I played both in concerts. And right towards the end of Psycho, you hear, da, 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 da. Oh, really? It's all connected. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is connected. Huh. And it's stuff like that that really gets me excited because yeah. I don't know. Um, I have no idea what Bernard Herrmann knew right. about Shostakovich. Yeah. I mean, Shostakovich is you know, 55 years old in that, you know, who's right. alive. It was like, yeah, yeah. he was like you, right, right. somebody on the other side of the earth is right. recognizes you as a great composer. So, wow. um, that's what I'm saying. It's not about what, it's not about quality. Right. It's not about good and bad. Right. It's not about even a continuum. It's all just one giant dialogue between yeah. composers and, mm-hmm. and some, sometimes it's relevant. Sometimes it's not. And what it boils down to for me in my work for Philip, I work with another composer named Elliot Goldenthal. I work with, with instrumentalists, and I work with the composer at MIT. I work with all these people, and I'm super lucky to work with all of them. I love them all. Yeah. Um, everybody needs help yeah. on every level, mm-hmm. and it's it's profound. Not everybody is equipped to to do all the things they need to do, and even yeah. if they do them, it might not work. Yeah, yeah. And so all you could do is advocate for the music you like so this polish composer who died in 2013 i just turned jeff on to him because yeah. he, he did he's mostly only known in this country for having done the mu- the music to francis ford coppola's dracula yeah. in 1992 mm-hmm. and uh you know francis ford coppola was looking for like the sound of transylvania so he went to some dark corner of eastern europe and found this, found guy, this guy and uh there was something in the music right that i immediately responded to and said that's yeah, that's something that I I really yeah, like, yeah. and I and then you start listening to his other music ten years, fifteen, twenty years before, and you're like, that's what he does. That's who yeah. he's always been. It's not huh. like he wasn't writing a film score; he was just right, doing right. his music. And so, uh, so now he's dead, huh? And and nobody cares about him, right? And right at the end of his life, he wrote three symphonies. None of them have ever been done in right. the United States. One of them is this great, great piece called September Symphony that he wrote. Uh, first after September 11th mm-hmm. and he uh, regarding film music he said look I I'm old enough now that I don't have time for anything other than music of a singular authorship right meaning he didn't have to deal with Hollywood directors yeah, yeah. or anything like that right. but beyond that he, he was like this Polish guy and I can't imagine what it was like growing up in the Soviet bloc right and he was so gung-ho pro-American right of like I'm on you know I'm on on waveringly pro-american and it's a different thing hearing some polish guy say that versus some guy with a giant pickup truck and sailing blasting down the street (laughs) you know so i you know and and, and so all i can do he's gone he doesn't have any children and so uh next year um i'm curating a, a festival with the a polish music festival with the Chicago Philharmonic where they're doing Dracula live to film. They're really? they're playing the music with the film. Right. And then there's a symphonic concert on Friday of mixed Polish composers. And then on Sunday they're doing his his uh, mass at a Polish cathedral, which is falls on November 11th, and it's the 100th anniversary of Polish independence. Oh, wow. Again, yeah. this has nothing to do with creativity. Right. <laughs> you know, but, you know, and, and if... And if and I'm not doing it to try to save music. Or right. I'm just interested in the music that yeah, I you like. love it. So, 
I mean, that's what I don't know about you guys. Like all these bands, this rubber plant thing they were talking right. about. Like every interview, it's like when Zeppelin getting back together, and he's yeah, like, he doesn't want to do that. I think he it's a pr- the the publicist probably gets to the interviewer beforehand and says, "Don't ask don't about Zeppelin." Yeah, yeah. But why why doesn't he want to do that? I don't know. I just I feel like he doesn't want to move backwards. I think I just he's probably well. First of all, I don't think he can hit the notes. He you know sang really high, and and they did do a reunion a few years ago, and just. Couldn't do it. He he didn't do the the high vocals, um, but yeah, I just think he's he's probably in his he's got to be seventy, maybe or maybe. But it's, it's tragic for me for that type of music that, that you yeah. like that there's no, you know, a composer dies, he leaves all his work behind. You right. any string quartet or right. anybody could play it. Right. These bands go out. Yeah, it's and unless there's a really good cover band. Yeah, like they they had his son, the drummer died, John Bonham, in 1980, I think. And his son, Jason Bonham, had a band for years in the 80s. or He's played around in the 80s. But I think they had his band. They had him filling in when they did the reunion. So it's like the next best thing is to get the, the well, like your, But your favorite bands are dead, right? They're gone? Um, Not really, no. no. no I think my... Well, maybe like the, the punk ones and stuff probably are, but like the hard rock ones. But even that, I'm at the point now where like with rock bands and new way or whatever genre bands i feel like if i've seen the band twice in my life i don't need to see them again <laughs> and maybe it has something to do with me being 48 <laughs> and i just i like being home i like my house right, yeah. and my records and my books and, right. and my heat i like my um, things yeah and they don't want beer spilled on all over me or right to be you know what i wouldn't give to go to a classical music concert where somebody spilled beer on me <laughs> It's it's look it's a major problem. Like you yeah. talk about well, you go to Symphony Hall, yeah, any night of the year, and I would say the average age is they'll tell you something different. Like the average age is fifty five. Right. The average age looks like it's it's a sea of white. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah. And there's a lot of lip service paid to like what you know what are we going to do about that? But nobody right. does anything about yeah. it. Yeah. So it's just um, it's always in danger of like to, I, I suppose I, I have a friend here in town who's a priest yeah. and he's got the same problem yeah you know it's like what are we going to do when these people aren't around anymore yeah yeah he's 40 yeah um, you know so it, but that's what I'm saying You, yeah. it's, it's funny it's strange I don't know if you can say it with a priest it's strange right, bedfellows right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's like what are we what are we going to do you know yeah. and, and that's the beautiful part of more popular music it's yeah. like we're not going to do it if nobody's going to show up yeah yeah exactly uh but at the same time sometimes it needs to be done yeah when nobody's you know like whether regardless of whether anybody wants it or not yeah. so yeah. um i don't know i i need to learn more about it but it, i can't i can't bring myself to do any of it like the the producer guy i know in new york he gave me like the beatles discography yeah and it's been in my itunes and then i deleted it and the, the, <laughs> like the class you know i didn't listen to, i listened to like half of uh the uh, sergeant peppers right yeah <laughs> i have to that stop one. myself instead of saying dr pepper I, you know i don't know <laughs> but i listened to half of it and and it just wasn't i'm not Didn't move, yeah. yeah well no i'm just not getting it or something yeah. and and that's okay like yeah, you yeah. know no it is it's but but it's i recognize that they're really important to other people yeah know? i think that's the key thing that people do you like that. them i do i do and they, but i i feel like they are Catalog as I get older is like sh- like of what I like in their catalog is shrinking. But like then, then they only do like 
10 albums or something? Yeah, in a, in a very short period. Yeah, uh, it was like five years or something, yeah. right? I mean, and that's the, the, the amazing thing about them is, you know, all of their albums do, you know, there's not really that many bad songs on them. So, you know, that that was the... I, I just have a hard time when people, again, you know, it's like people throw around the word like genius or masterpiece or whatever, yeah, but like um, you have to realize that like as soon as I heard that simply having a wonderful Christmas time, I was uh, like, this was not written by a Paul McCartney. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know it's the worst song that's <laughs> ever like, been written. You know, like, yeah. you know, I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't think Mozart would ever write something yeah. like that. And my, my thing has always been like, if John Lennon had survived, if he hadn't been <laughs> murdered, would he be doing these awful like records with like, here's, you know, John Lennon with Kanye West, or you know, probably, maybe, right? you know. Probably, probably because. It, so, but who the hell? But this is what I'm saying. Who the hell am I to put people? Down? I'm like everybody else. I'm like right. naysaying as I'm putting down naysayers. Yeah. You know, I, I'm not involved in that, so I don't know. But yeah. uh, who the hell am I? Like he wouldn't have done his original great thing if he right. listened to people like me. Yeah, yeah. No, and no. and there are some things I remember when like uh, I remember it was a big thing when uh, Johnny Cash was dying and he was doing those old like oh, american standards yeah, yeah and and you could like i never i heard a couple of them but the people in my circle were like heavily affected by that they're like yeah. oh my god he was like this old guy who's dying singing these songs yeah, like you know good for you know good for him i'm glad he did those right. i mean i you know um schubert died at 31 yeah mozart died at 35 yeah um you know uh if Philip Glass had died at 48, he'd have no symphonies or no concertos. And no right. He's got 11 symphonies and, since then, yeah. and 13 concertos since then, since yeah. 50. But beyond that, there are things which I think are uh, contributions to sort of um, the human musical trajectory, which yeah. wouldn't be like the first violin concerto is an incredibly powerful thing. Yeah. His eighth symphony is him at his best. I mean, doing his thing. But um, I was talking to somebody yesterday about bringing chamber music back to these mansions in Salem, mm -hmm. and I said, um, you know, it's funny because we don't think of things like this anymore. But like Beethoven wrote all these thirty-something piano sonatas and all these string quartets and stuff, but none of that music was heard publicly in his right. life. Yeah. It was all for rich people's private parties. Yeah, and yeah. so I said, oh, okay, I'm going to do that tradition, bring it back to the, <laughs> the salons. Yeah. But I'm going to invite regular people. You know, right. like, yeah. Yeah. But but I said, you know, especially in this age of, of crazy media and all the rest of it, uh, you can read a book about what it was like in Vienna in 1815 and get one idea. But to me, I think more and more that music and specifically music, but the arts in general are much better indicator uh document yeah about what it's like to be alive at a certain time if mm -hmm. you listen to zeppelin or the beatles or something yeah like, yeah i get i i i wasn't born in the 60s right. were you born in the 60s you were born in 69 69 i i don't know what it was like to be a 20 year old then but i yeah i have an idea yeah it's the same thing you listen to beethoven quartet and you go oh this is what it was like to be in via it's much more authentic and uh mainlining what it's like to be uh mainlining history in that way yeah versus reading some yeah i hate the historians that talk about people like they know them here right right like, yeah oh well jfk knew right, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. He's like did you know jfk yeah how did you um 
Anyway, I I just uh, was it like six hours? Are we at six hours? <laughs> <laughs> we're in the we're in the ninety minute. Oh, okay, well, but um, it's fine. Sorry, no, no, and we no, got no. to like one of your questions. Yeah, no, 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 I it's fine. No, I, it's better. I, I meant yeah. to ask more questions. Like no, no, that's like fine. like where you're at with these things. It's interesting to me, like what you said about the Beatles and what. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and the fact that you. I was basically asking about listening fidelity over time, and it, so- it sounds like nothing. It sounds like things come and go for you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I go, I go through like there's certain times where like I just I can't even listen to the Beatles, and I don't know why. Or but there's nobody you can just put on at any time. There's certain artists I can put on that there's, there's maybe three or four. Uh, James Brown, all like all of his eras are mm-hmm. pretty much something I can listen to at any time, and it, it works for me. Uh, Rolling Stones do that to me for maybe a there's a certain period of their era of them from like 66 to maybe do you have similar interest to 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 Jeff and to uh no he he goes a little more underground than I do I think with like the weird noise music and all that kind of stuff I was gonna say what about your father uh yeah he's more of a pop music guy I think so I think I'm kind of right in the middle of both of them hmm Probably, because Jeff, you know, you know how Jeff and I met. No, well, when he worked at Forced Exposure. Maybe? No, the Record Exchange. Oh, okay. Yeah, and uh, he was one of the few people because I made, uh, I made uh, bootleg Koyanescuzzi T-shirts, and he's okay. one of the few people who uh, got okay. one. He got, he's one of the few people who got one not because he was special, but because he was one of the only people who had ever heard of Koyanescuzzi. Right, yeah, yeah. But he was so psyched, and he still has it. But. Yeah. He was the first person when I got the job for f- working with Philip Glass. He was the first person that I emailed from my Philip oh, Glass okay. email address. Going, it was like the scene from Working Girl. I was oh, like, "You'll yeah, never yeah, believe right, right, yeah. right." right. That's awesome. You know, and he was like, "Can I send you a picture?" He had all this like he had like a press kit from '85 oh, or something. Yeah. You know, yeah, he was he's all a big over. collector. But uh, I quickly realized, especially hanging out with him somewhat recently, that that's what I'm saying. I is like. Um, I feel bad that my musical worldview is so small. Even uh, I convinced myself that was okay because I was so passionate yeah. about a few things. Yeah, I think it, it's. But uh, and just you could spend your life just being a Shostakovich. Shostakovich right. wrote fifteen string quartets right. and fifteen symphonies. Right. You could spend your whole life. There, there are PhD students just studying those. Right. Um, but it's no excuse. Right. I should, you know, I should branch out. I always say that with, uh, like, when my older friends, you know make fun of like Justin Bieber or something like this is awful and I'm like well you're 46 year old man you're not really supposed to like Justin Bieber I mean you can I'm sure there's you know maybe there's some good music there well and if if he looked like if it was like the Spice Girls like it was for, it would be totally wrong and creepy yeah but uh yeah we'll, we'll wrap this up and yeah I would definitely like to do this again this was uh, <laughs> any time yeah definitely and uh, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah.